Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company for being with us tonight. Look, just keep downloading the ADH TV streaming service and tell your friends and family. You can watch on your television, of course, by searching ADH TV. There, it's all there. You can see it on your Apple TV app store or the Google Play store. And you can also download ADH TV on your phone or iPad. Soon I'll speak with the former Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, the federal member for New England, who should still be the leader of the Nationals. I say that because... How many of you who live in regional electorates went into the May election thinking that if you voted for the National Party, Barnaby Joyce would remain your leader? But as we've seen with Boris Johnson in the UK, with his former Chancellor Rishi Sunak exposed as plotting for months behind Boris's back, the same happened with Barnaby Joyce. People say that's politics. I call it a failure of character. David Littleproud was the deputy leader of the Nationals under Barnaby Joyce, promoted by Joyce himself, and after the election, for no reason except pure ambition, based, I might add, on little ability, he's a 100% renewables person, little proud, plotted to oust Joyce. The coalition a week before it. But I will be speaking to Barnaby Joyce about two big issues. The government is swanning around Fiji, as well as other overseas destinations. It's hard to imagine a leading figure in the government actually in Australia. The energy crisis is impacting businesses and households, not only their productivity, but their budgets. But fancy in a resource-rich, I've said this many times, resource-rich nation like ours, pensioners, who've contributed all their lives, having to decide whether they can afford to turn the heater on. The other issue is this foot and mouth disease outbreak. It's rife in Indonesia. And there are real concerns that Australians returning from Bali, where it now is as well, could inadvertently bring the virus home on their clothing or in food products. Now, if transmitted here, it threatens to devastate Australia's livestock industry. I also crossed to London to speak with the political editor of the Daily Express newspaper, David Maddox. Plenty happening there with the final eight now determined for the Conservative Party leadership. That eight has to be weaseled down to two. It'll be fiercely contested. We'll speak to David Maddox about that later in the program. Shortly, I'll have something to say about Ukraine. By following the Biden administration into Ukraine, have we committed a significant blunder? And Anthony Albanese yesterday talking about 82% renewables as part of the national energy market by 2030 and says he's got a mandate. I'll have something to say about that. And the defeated but brilliant Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker. And Australia, as I said yesterday, asleep at the wheel. Are we going to be run over again by an unaccountable United Nations. All of that coming up, it's a hooter and a belter of a program. Remember, you can email me about anything you see, and you do that very easily. Just email Alan Jones at adh.tv, Alan Jones at adh.tv. Well, as I alluded to in the introduction, these days 
You can't escape the newspaper headlines. China's focus on sea power means it can already control most of our region. Another one, China is still a worry, but Russia more so. Another, we misread China or misread China at our peril. Another, is China testing Albanese? Another, PM to tackle aggressive China. Another one, Wong meets Wang as ministers attempt to mend diplomatic ties. Rightly, China occupies significant focus in Canberra. But like most things, whether it's energy policy or, as I will argue later, the United Nations, these days there's no debate on critical issues. Governments in Australia speak with a sense of absolute certainty about the rightness of their position. The taxpayer, apart from getting a vote, and remember almost two thirds of voters didn't want either of the major parties, but apart from the vote, what say does the taxpayer get? Which brings me to Ukraine. What is happening in Ukraine is awful by any standards, but our involvement has not only put Russia offside with us, but further threatens whatever relations might be left with China. And this brings us again to the Biden administration. Looking at the Biden administration objectively, why would you answer the call from them to do anything, let alone join the adventure against Russia in Ukraine? Now, forget for a moment who's winning and who's losing, but there are many commentators who argue that Russian military forces are grinding their way towards central Ukraine and making further progress northwest and southwest. There are differing views about the success of the brave Ukrainian army. But has Western military assistance escalated the conflict? There are many reports which argue that entire Ukrainian brigades are dying, giving up or retreating. Of Ukrainian casualties, an American general estimated the true figure may be up to 200,000. And what about the sanctions against Russia, designed by the Biden administration and accepted unquestioningly by the Allies. Yet as we stand today, Russia seems in excellent economic health, with inflation falling and the currency stronger than it was before the military operation started. As Ted Dwyer wrote recently in the Australian Spectator, quote, quite why our parliament decided in a bipartisan manner to join in this disaster remains a mystery. Ukraine, he wrote, is a nation some 13,000 kilometres away Australia and Ukraine have economic, negligible economic, military, political or cultural ties. He writes, the tussle between Russia and Ukraine over the status of Russian aligned regions in eastern Ukraine has nothing to do with Australia. He says Australia is not a member of NATO or of the EU. There doesn't appear, he writes, to be any national interest justifying Australian involvement in the conflict, unquote. But here's the number of the issue. On February 4, the Russian Federation and China publicly entered into a formal alliance. So by entering the Ukraine crisis against Russia, Australia has taken a position against China. Yet China is our number one trading partner, buying more than $165 billion of our exports each year. And whether we like it or not, China's the great power in our region. Now, while we've got all sorts of alliances, we cannot ignore the power of the BRICS Grouping, B-R-I-C-S, short for Brazil, that's the B, R for Russia, I for India, C for China, and S for South Africa. They represent 41% of the global population, 17% of global trade. China and Russia want to use this grouping to advance their interests. But this group of nations are our trading competitors. They export the same commodities as we do. Many countries are keen to join BRICS. If we're identified as we are with the war in Ukraine opposing Russia, might the BRICS grouping be used against us? One thing that was never considered at the outset, surely, was the sheer incompetence of the Biden administration, to which we seem to have hitched our wagon. Yes, we have an alliance with the United States. But in the light of the Biden incompetence and the fact that the Ukraine conflict is really a European NATO issue, thousands of kilometres away from us, who in Canberra argued that we should perhaps sit this one out? Now we find that on March 7, the Russian government issued a list of nations that it views as unfriendly. We're on that list. But the same Russia announced an historic alliance, as I said, in February with China. Therefore, is our involvement in the Ukraine going to mean significant consequences for Australia? I repeat, 
Exports to China, 165 billion. Our total export trade, 515 billion. So back to the BRICS nations. Is this where Australia will cop the payback? Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, Indonesia, it wants to join. They export the same commodities as we do. Coal, gas, oil, aluminium, gold, steel, iron ore, barley, sugar, livestock. Could China replace our exports with exports from the BRICS nations? Russia can supply China with most of the commodities that China imports for us. As Ted Dwyer writes, and I quote, in March 2022, the Indonesian state-owned energy giant Pertamina confirmed that they were interested in replacing Australian oil and wheat as they were being offered the same commodities at discounted rates by Russia. He further points out, quote, Russia and the BRICS nations can replace almost all of Australia's exports to Indonesia. I think Ted Dwyer in The Spectator sums it up splendidly, quote, by remaining out of the Ukrainian disaster, Australia would likely have evaded the payback that is coming. But right now, he writes, Australians have to prepare for the inevitable backlash. It is not going to be pretty, unquote. And therein lies an enormous and important story. Well, I'm joined by the former Deputy Prime Minister, who returned outstanding results for the National Party at the May 21 federal election. For his trouble, he was knifed for the leadership by an ambitious, and you've heard me say this before, talentless David Littleproud, one of whose first utterances was to say he supported 100% renewables. Not too sure how well that'll go down with people in the bush, but it most probably won't matter because they hardly know him. Barnaby Joyce joins me. Barnaby, thank you for your time. Now, look, I'm not going to embarrass you, but Pleasure. just back to that election, you took a team into the election led by Barnaby Joyce, and I'm sure they voted for the Nationals for many reasons, but one, because you were the leader. Wouldn't those people feel betrayed that that leader is now a little proud? Well, I, I suppose as soon as you join up to politics and you sign your uh, nomination form, you, you know you're going to be part of a, the process of politics. And some days it works for you and some days it doesn't. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, I, I was very happy with the result we got. We won every seat that we stood in. The Libs, unfortunately, lost 19. So, and I'll stand by my record that whilst I've been the deputy or the leader, there's not one election that I've gone to where I haven't picked up, increased our numbers in the party room. Absolutely. So do you think, now I know this is embarrassing, but do you think these people voted for a national party led by Little Proud? That wouldn't have even been in their mind. Well, they would have known they were voting for in for political operators and and these things can happen. I, well, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do, Alan. I'm not going to turn to Malcolm Turnbull. So, you know, I'm going to suck it up, take it on the chin and... Get on with get on with the job that's before me in veterans affairs. Shadow veterans affairs very important, and also uh, looking after what's happening in regional Australia. Right. I live here. I, we'll, get on, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to that in a minute. But I just have to say, where I go and people I talk to have a real concern that the National Party, like most probably everybody else, seem to be lurching to the left. Is that your feeling? Is that what people are telling you? Well, I, I hope not. I. I, I as a person, I've won back a, a Senate seat and I've won back a lower house seat. Um, a, a lower house seat against a guy who had a 23% margin. He always says he didn't stand. He did stand and he just pulled out when he knew he was going to lose, <laughs> Mr Windsor. Now, um, now, you don't beat these people by trying to be them. You, what you do is clearly voice an alternate form of policy belief. And if they say, don't be chasing the polls, or they say people don't believe that, well, your job as a politician is to convince them that it's right. Good on you. you. Know, Good on for you. instance, nuclear power, convince them it's right. Good on Understand you. Understand that you've got to have base load power, you've got to keep your coal-fired power stations going. Convince them it's right. Tell them 2050 is going to cost them a bucket. Well, that's not too hard. All they have to do is buy the groceries, buy the fuel and pay the power bill. They work out how much they're being swindled there now. Absolutely. Um, and foot and mouth disease. Well, look, don't come to that. I, I spoke last week about this looming crisis that a highly contagious foot and mouth disease has spread through Indonesia. The Federal Agriculture Department has issued urgent warnings to travellers to Bali in a desperate attempt to stop bringing the disease home. Barney, are you confident that everything is being done to prevent an outbreak here? Absolutely not. 
And this is right at the forefront of people's minds. In fact, I've got people ringing me up now wanting me to speak at a, a, a forum, a demonstration, a, a show of support in Dubbo. That's been happening tonight. They insisted I get down there. Let's look at this, Alan. It's foot and mouth disease for cloven hoof animals. So you lose your, your cattle industry, you lose your sheep industry, you lose your pig industry, you lose your goat industry, and then camels go. So I suppose they're camelids, so alpacas would have to go as well. Now, when you go into a supermarket and there is no pork on the shelf, no beef on the shelf, no mutton on the shelf, no lamb on the shelf, no goat on the shelf, your, your grocery bill is going to go through the roof. So this is not just a problem for agricultural Australia, disaster for agricultural Australia. This is a big problem for Australia, full stop. And when we look at it, when it comes in, and if they if what they're doing right now, it'll come in. Oh, this is ridiculous. What they're doing is pathetic. A couple more dogs at Cairns and Darwin, a social media campaign and flyers. Yeah, well, they'll fix it. I mean, that certainly will stop anything, won't it? That, that, that would stop a comet, something like that. Now, you've got to actually say to people, listen, if you're going to Bali, buy a really pair, cheap pair of shoes because you're going to drop it in the bin on the way back and we'll give you um, some slippers. We'll give you some thongs. Uh, you know, that we you are not wearing those shoes you wore in Bali into Australia because it will come in. Uh, and, uh, you know, you hear the stories, the nightmarish stories. I heard one the other night when foot and mouth was in England. And this farmer was saying, I could see the fires because they have to destroy all your cattle. And each night the smoke was getting closer and closer and closer. And he was thinking, but there's no stock moving on my place, so I should be right. Then one day he went down to uh, put the bulls with the heifers and the bull wasn't walking well. He walked up, walked up to it, foot and mouth. All had to be destroyed, all shot and then burnt, incinerated. Now, this is this will arrive here. This will arrive here unless we have... It's a real test of competence for the new Labor government. It's an absolute test of competence. And the way they're going at the moment, it's an absolute fail. This will be devastating. No transport operators, no abattoir workers, no sale yards, so there's no money for the hairdresser, no movement of stock, can't move farming plant because it's been on country that's, uh, that's had foot and mouth. If it gets into the feral pig population, God help us. They should be having a campaign right now saying, this will be the baiting program. We're going to start right, right away on, on feral pigs. This will, will upgrade the potency of the bait. We'll increase the delivery of the bait. This will be our plan. We'll be no more people coming back from Bali wearing the same shoes or soiled clothes. It will not come into Australia. It will be left off. There will be massive fines for people who trespass on people's property from this point forward so that we completely... Uh, institutionalised people or train people not to go wandering onto farms. Um, and then we will have to, we should have forefront vets, I suppose they should be, see, uh, that are actually working in Bali trying to, a vaccination program or whatever they can to try and uh, push this disease back. Don't wait for it to get here, push it back. If it gets into Papua New Guinea and Boigu Island, north of Australia, you can Barnaby, see the boats leaving Papua New Guinea. Barnaby, in coronavirus, people were refused the right to re-enter Australia. I mean, this is a critical issue. This is an $80 billion industry. And the disease, to our, to our viewers, I should say, spreads amongst livestock, either as an airborne disease or through contaminated feed or through faeces or even clothing. It doesn't infect human beings, but a visitor to Bali who goes near an animal farm could bring the disease home, their clothes, or as Barnaby says, on their shoes. Now, Barnaby, I know it sounds draconian, but this is such a risk. Should Australians Ooh. who are currently in Bali, where this foot and mouth disease has now arrived in Bali, it was in other parts of Indonesia, should they be allowed re-entry into Australia? Well, I think that's certainly something that should be discussed is whether you should be able to come back to Australia. I mean, if you're going to bring the disease in, the answer is no. If it's if it's if they do the assessment, say it's a certain he'll come in if you go to Bali, then he can't go to Bali till they get the disease out of Bali, because if it gets in Australia, Alan, we have got Buckley's and none because we've got a massive feral pig population, massive, yeah. massive feral deer pop, feral deer population. It'll be decimating beyond what would be in England. And uh, you know, my father is a vet, and he he was very much at the forefront of the of the eradication of brucellosis, which we did bovine brucellosis, bovine tuberculosis. Now, the reason they could eradicate that is because it was only in cattle. 
So you just find the cattle, get rid of the disease. But foot and mouth, oh, hell no. That's in a whole range of animals. And, the, you know, you've got national parks everywhere, feral pigs, feral deer, moving across the countryside, it will be a nightmare. Absolutely. And to other people think, who think, oh, that's an $80 billion ag industry, no, this will cost you in your shopping trolley mm-hmm. because once you get that massive restriction on supply, guess what's going to happen to the year's price? Right. It'll go through yeah. the roof. Barnaby made that point about someone who was in Britain, that outbreak of Britain, I should say, in 2001, forced the destruction of more than 6 million pigs, cows and sheep at an estimated cost of £8 billion. Now, our agricultural industry, as you heard Barnaby say, is bigger than that of the UK. The beef industry alone is worth £20 billion. But if you talk to farmers in the UK today, all these years later, 21 years on, they can never forget the burning pits, the stench across the landscape, the immense distress that was caused, and the ongoing pall cast over the entire farming community. And, I mean, you just made the point, the economic cost felt with the grocery bill, and for towns, the cash flow stops and so on. Uh, there's no, I'm talking to you tonight, but where is the focus? Half the government is overseas. I mean, who's running the show here? There doesn't seem to be any focus on this, Barnaby. Yeah, and it's ridiculous. They, apparently, they're going to pass legislation to change the temperature of the globe. Now, that's remarkable for people who can't change a tyre. But what is should be at the forefront of discussions is how we a job they could actually do how we stop foot and mouth coming to this country. But they love this sort of fantasy land rubbish, you know. Oh, it's climate change. Oh, it's, a, it's an integrity commission. I mean, get away from the fanciful and deal with the real. The real is foot and mouth coming into Australia would be decimating for our nation more so than many other nations on the, on, on, in the world. I mean, we will suffer because we have a clean, green image well, that goes the night you've got foot and mouth turns up. Absolutely. Well, you've got the Minister Murray Watt who says compulsory screening was not required. That is, people coming back, not required. And then he basically says we're relying on the truthfulness of passengers. Ask them, have you had contact with livestock or farmland? Seriously, is this a legitimate policy position? Well, it's, it's, that's like saying, Alan, we rely on the truthfulness to say whether you've got drugs on you. Yeah. So if you've got drugs when you come in, if you just stand in that queue, uh, I've got some MDMA, some acid, some coke, so I'll go stand over there because I'm going to be truthful. You know, the, the whole reason people break laws is they're not truthful. Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, not truthful. Uh, people who lie, they lie. See, a lot of people when they come in, they lie. But if they know that there is a real sense of a massive penalty like Okay, um, we want you to dispose of your shoes, dispose of your soiled clothes. They should be screened. Haven't you, sir? They should be screened. Yeah, and because every one of them, every one of them, every one of them. He says, Murray Watt says, oh, we can't afford it. We don't have the staff to be able to screen people. So, okay, open slather, come in and destroy the whole industry. But we've run out of time. I mean, just before you go, um, who else is fighting this campaign? It's the reason I wanted to speak to you tonight, but. We haven't yet well, got I'm, a national focus on this. Well, I'm going to make sure my very best. Now, we're, I've been talking to people and they want to have a, a large, um, uh, you know, I suppose, demonstration, public meeting, trying to organise it in Dubbo because it's a central position. And people have been on the phone to me tonight and asking me, and they said, we want you to speak there. Mm. So I'm just going to belt the drum because I, I'm a cattle producer. I know. A sheep producer. But my concern and, and, is like yeah. coronavirus. They're already coming back from Bali. There are people already returning people from Bali. Around, as I said, there are people walking around their thongs in Bali today. Yeah. Who'll be walking around their same thongs in Dubbo in the next few weeks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Keep going, it's Barnaby. Keep going. You're on the right tram. We need about 100 of you. Love you to talk. We'll talk Thank again. You, there he is. Outstanding, Thanks, isn't he? John Howard said this bloke was the best retail politician in the country. Isn't it magnificent the way he tells the story and gets to the nub of the issue? Barnaby Joyce. Yesterday, Prime Minister Albanese urged the Greens and the Independents to support Labor's climate change bill when it is presented to the Parliament later this month. Amongst other things, he said this, and I quote, we have a mandate for our position on climate. We announced it in December last year. We announced 43% by 2030. We announced 82% renewables as part of the national energy market by 2030, unquote. I would apply one word to those comments absurd. 
This is the new government heading for implosion. Mark my words. They don't tell us how we get to 43% or how they will get 82% renewables as part of the national energy market by 2030. But what about the mandate? Political reality in Australia is massively obscured by a preferential voting system. If this election had been conducted on a first-past-the-post principle, the coalition would have won 73 seats, the ALP 71, the Greens 2, Independents 3, Stegall, Helen Haynes in India and Andrew Wilkie in Tasmania, no Teals, Catawins 1 and Rebecca Sharkey in South Australia, Centre Alliance. And indeed, votes achieved by the Teal Independents indicate that their claim to represent their electorates needs a bit of qualification. In the seat of Goldstein in Victoria, the Liberal Tim Wilson got 40.6% of the vote. The Teal, Zoe Daniel, 34.7%. She purports to speak for the Goldstein community. In WA in the seat of Curtin, Kate Cheney gained 29.5%, 29.5% of the vote. The coalition, 41.3%. Cheney won. In North Sydney, Kylie Tink, who's already made a lot of noise, the Teal, gained 25.7% of the primary vote. The coalition, 38%. In Wentworth, following a massive campaign, Allegra Spender got 35.8% of the primary vote, but Sharma from the coalition, 40.5%. In fact, the only successful Teal candidate to win over 40% of the vote was in Frydenberg's seat of Kuyong where Monique Ryan gained 40.3%, but even so, Frydenberg got 42.7%. So to Albany's mandate, I'm not too sure how real this mandate is, when two-thirds of the nation didn't want the Labor Party. We're being governed by a Labor Party rejected by 67.2% of the electorate. By the way, consider this. Most of the Greens who succeeded did so with the support of the Liberals. One of the victims of this strange preferential system is the very talented, beaten Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker, splendidly credentialed, first-class honours in arts and law from Sydney University, formerly a judge's associate in the Supreme Court of Queensland and the High Court of Australia. No toffee tongue about Amanda Stoker. She's 39 years of age. Her father's a plumber, a drainer and a gas fitter in Western Sydney. Her mother worked at a shop as a retail assistant. She went to Hurlston Agricultural High School. She's been married for 17 years and has got three children. She's a woman of significant moral courage. She describes herself as a proud conservative Christian who believes Christian values are under attack. Well, all that is not enough to get her elected. But writing today in the Australian Financial Review, Amanda Stoker argues correctly that if the beaten Liberals believe they were punished for not being sufficiently progressive I think that word should be regressive because most of the so-called moderates are raging lefties. But Amanda Stoker says, if that becomes the basis of the party's rebuild strategy, it'll need to become comfortable in the wilderness, unquote. Now here's Anthony Albanese saying he's got a mandate for 82% of renewables in the energy market by 2030. Where does the coalition stand? Because as Amanda Stoker says, quote, it was a lack of differentiation that cost the Liberal seats. For a Conservative voter, on the surface, there appeared to be little difference between Labor and the Liberals on climate and energy policy, on spending volumes, on attitudes to family, or meaningful protection for religious freedom. And she writes, quote, the Liberal Party's been in government at the federal level for two thirds of the post-World War II era, and history shows that it wins when, rather than avoiding difficult policy or political issues, it confidently asserts its values to show why the progressive agenda does not, in fact, represent progress at all." Unquote. As Amanda Stoker correctly says, caving to leftist positions might have changed the subject, but it didn't win votes. The cumulative effect left the Liberal Party's base wondering if there was anything for which the parliamentary party was prepared to fight." Unquote. Is there anyone in the leadership of the Liberal Party with the courage and the wit to get Amanda Stoker into the House of Representatives urgently? The party lacks intellectual clout and genuine Liberal conviction. Amanda Stoker has both. Well, it's a political dogfight in Britain 
and the world is watching for who will replace Boris Johnson. I have to confess, I share the sentiments of many British voters that Boris Johnson should not have been replaced, but this is a payback by the Remainers for Johnson against all the odds and in the face of political media and business opposition taking Britain out of the EU. Now they're lining up and the list of candidates is a final eight. The Parliamentary Party will now vote in what is what's called exhaustive preferential voting. That is the person who gets the fewest votes is out and that would make seven left and that process applies again until there are two left. Who will the two be? Well, let's go to our Nostradamus. David Maddox, no person, I'm telling you, has a better insight into the Conservative Party than David Maddox. He's the political editor of the Express Online. You can read him at express.co.uk. And just before we've come to air, I know David has had a text message from one of the candidates. David, you're right in the thick of this. (laughs) Goodness me. Now, firstly about the text message, anything you can tell us? So um, it's uh, it was uh, a message from one of the one of the candidates, basically on the uh, the way that the right of a party is now going to vote, uh, and basically they've decided to uh, support uh, her, which is Suella Fernandez, who's uh, for us for a lot of us is a genuine conservative in this race. She's the Attorney General. Uh, she's sound on virtually every policy you can think of. So uh, obviously her chances of winning are quite slim in you know, yes. um, the oddity Just... that is a Conservative Party these days. Let's go back. Uh, but they're also going to split up to the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss by the sounds of it, yes. so, uh, who looks like a compromise candidate. Yes, indeed. Well, I want to come to this because the former Chancellor Rishi Sunak leads the endorsement of MPs with 38, Penny Mordaunt with 23. Just firstly, tell us, David, before we get going, when will this vote take place and when will we know the top two who must then campaign for the support of the rank and file membership of the Conservative Party, which I might add, following Boris Johnson's elevation to the leadership in 2019, grew to about 200,000. Labor's got about half a million. But mm. when, will we, when will we know the final two? We should know the final two about Wednesday next week, maybe Thursday next week, but probably Wednesday next week. They're going to just uh, have a vote each day and uh, knock one off. I think I think they're going to have to speed it up slightly, but uh, the kind of parliamentary holiday or recess, they call it, will start in the middle of next week and they want to have a final two by then. Right. So, so now, uh, my guess at the moment is, yeah. So what, Sunak- my guess is that it's going to be, yeah, Sunak, Sunak, the ex-Chancellor who resigned, uh, and basically uh, was the reason that Boris was deposed in the end, yep. and and somebody else. That's the yes. Guess. I mean, just on that business. I mean, Sonic. I found that speech of Sonic yesterday sickening, when he was telling everyone how wonderful mm. Boris was, what a great person he was, and whatever. And and as Nadine Dorries has said, I mean, I don't know why she isn't a candidate. She said, "How could a bloke?" who'd be the Chancellor, how could he have a video ready to go, a campaign ready to go the moment Boris said he was going? So this had been organised for weeks and weeks, months and months. Uh, He's got the most endorsements. Is there a campaign, though, alive which says anybody but Sunak? There is a campaign, anybody but Sunak, and uh, quite an active one, actually. I, I, when I came in uh, earlier this week, I came into Parliament on Monday, actually. Um, the first three conversations I had with Conservative MPs was, how are we going to stop Rishi Sunak? And essentially, uh, he's gone from being a Brexiteer back in 2016, part of the Johnson crowd, to being the establishment candidate. He's basically the, the, uh, the Remainer's choice, if you like. Uh, which is an odd position. We've got the weird position now that a Remainer back in 2016 is seen as the Brexiteer's choice, and the Brexiteer sure. back in 2016 Stop. is now Stop. the Remainer's choice. It's, it's, uh, the world has gone upside down. Upside down. But it's, uh, it's got ugly, uh, it's got... But, but the problem is he's seen as the man who stabbed Boris in the back. He's yeah. also the man blamed for the tax, tax rises, yes. which are crippling the country. Yeah. And, I mean, um, you've been briefed from a Downing Street source, I know, and it has got very ugly. I mean, mm. is the new Chancellor, Dadim Zahawi, under investigation for tax affairs? Is there a dossier circulating on Rishi Sunak? There is. There is. And it's just, 
it got nasty within 24 hours. They um, they decided to put the policies aside and just go for each other. The interesting one about Rishi Sunak is uh, the alleged comeback of, of Dominic Cummings, yes. who's this uh, yes. Svengali figure in the background, really toxic ex-chief yes. of staff for Johnson. Nobody wants him back. And they're all claiming that he's behind the Rishi Sunak mm. campaign, which, of course, uh, terrifies a lot of um, a lot of Conservative MPs. Uh, the Sunak campaign gave us a uh, interesting one-word answer that I'm not sure I can repeat on uh, on, <laughs> on your right. show, but it was. <laughs> they, they, yeah, that's right. Uh, basically, yeah. have you been told that the former Education Secretary Gavin Williamson, who was Theresa May's chief whip, is in the background? seeking to ensure that Rishi Sunak becomes Prime Minister? This actually started last night. It actually started last night. So he is uh, an expert at moving people around and uh, and basically cooking the figures in terms of votes. And uh, he did it for the Boris Johnson campaign in 2019. So he ensured that Boris's main rival at the time, Michael Gove, uh, who uh, was the one who could have beaten Boris in 2019, did not get to the final two with the membership. Yeah. Instead, it was Jeremy Hunt, yeah. who was a Remainer, and Boris easily yeah. won. Yeah. And he seems to be at it again. He mm. seems to have um, got the Rishi campaign to lend votes to the Jeremy Hunt campaign again to ensure that Jeremy Hunt is in the final eight. And uh, it, it looks like there's going to be a lot of games played uh, about- I think I think personally the worry is that we're going to end up with two uh, candidates for a Conservative Party, who neither of whom are Conservative. That's a and problem, that's going to be the big worry. Just on the membership, how yeah. will Rishi Sunak go down amongst the rank and file membership? Who will have the final say over which of two becomes the leader? I don't think he's going to go down well at all. They, the membership are angry about what happened to Boris. Yeah. You know, this is a prime Absolutely. minister who got Brexit done, who got us through a pandemic with a fastest vaccine rollout. And a majority um, of 80? Well, one of the fastest in the world. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's united the international community in the Ukraine war situation. Yeah. And, 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 and a majority of 80, 14 million, 14 million Brits voted for him. Yeah. Hey? So yeah, Rishi. I don't think Rishi is at all popular in the amongst the members. It's 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 difficult to see what matchup he could win. I mean, the interesting one is Penny Mordaunt. Yep. He's very popular, um, but uh, and, and actually very patriotic. She gets she represents uh, the naval base Portsmouth yes. uh, as as her seat. But uh, her her Achilles heel is that she's very woke on things That's like trans it. issues yep. and net zero. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it could well be that if we have a Rishi versus Penny um, com- contest, red Rishi versus Pinko Penny, that, you know, we've we essentially not got a, a proper competition. Mm. You mentioned Suella Bravo and the Attorney-General. I mean, she's immensely well-credentialed, a Queen's Council, committed supporter of Brexit, yeah. supports sending those cross-channel migrants to Rwanda. Rwanda. Her parents are from Mauritius and Kenya. What about this Kemi Badenoch, 42 years of age, uh, Minister for State for mm. Local Government. Very interesting candidate, is she not? I mean, while she was born at Wimbledon, her parents are of Nigerian origin, so she's black. She supported Brexit, described it in her maiden speech as the greatest ever vote of confidence in the project of the United Kingdom. Very mm. strong views on political race theory. As I said, though she's black, in a debate in the House of Commons, she said Britain was not institutionally racist. What kind of support she got? She's got a lot of support and she's uh, gaining a lot of momentum. Uh, the problem with Kemi Badenoch is that she's very inexperienced. Yes. And uh, yes. there's a lot of concerns. Uh, this chap, Michael Gove, is behind her campaign and there is a mm. big suspicion that he's doing it to split the right-wing vote. But she's she's definitely got star quality. She's shown an awful lot of leadership qualities I think she's going to do quite well, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the other one you mentioned, as we say, is uh, Suella Braverman, another one with star qualities yeah, yeah, to definitely, her. Definitely. Uh, the Attorney General, who's really stuck her neck out, really annoyed the lefty lawyer mm-hmm. crowd, actually, with some of her uh, um, uh, her decisions. So it's uh, she's the one, I would say, for my, my kind of cohort, the Express readers, who are proper kind of 
mm. right-wing conservatives. Mm. She's the one who's who's pressing all their buttons just, at the just, moment. Just two quick uh, ones. Most of are going to have to make a deal. Yeah, so. just two quick ones before you go. Uh, what clout does Jacob Rees-Mogg have? Because I note he's quite outspoken in support of Liz Truss. He is. He's he's fallen in behind Liz, and I think Liz Truss is going to be the foreign secretary. This is is going to be the uh, in the end the, the Brexiteer candidate. She's um, uh, she, she's also got Nadine Doris, who's the culture secretary, yes. uh, and uh, the education secretary James Cleverly. All the Boris loyalists are backing her. Yes, uh, I don't think Jacob has the clout that he had a few years ago uh, at all. Right. And uh, but nevertheless, he's he's still a an important voice on the conservative right. benches. Okay. But uh, a few years ago, he could have brought fifty MPs with him. I'm not sure he can. Anymore. Right, righto. Okay, Nostradamus, who will be the last <laughs> two? Who will be the last two? I'm what you know tonight. As of as of now, my prediction will be Rishi Sunak as almost 100%, unless something goes completely wrong, against the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss. Right. And if it's that matchup, Liz Truss will be the next Prime Minister. Really? I must say, just you, you're right at the centre of this. Just on the reading that I've done, I thought it might be Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt. But that's uh, an interesting comment, your last one. So well, no, was... no, I mean, this is, I mean, this is it. It's, it's Rishi, I think, most people's guess is it's Rishi against Penny or Rishi against Liz. Mm. Uh, I think it's leaning slightly towards Liz, but it could be. There you are. It's, it's close. Great it's stuff. Close. Great stuff. David, you're outstanding. Thank you for joining us. That's a very important insight <laughs> from David Maddox. I mean, uh, he is no media person in Britain is closer to the insights of the Conservative Party than this man. And that interesting comment at the end, Rishi Sunak versus Liz Truss, he said. And if that were to be the case and then goes to the membership, as well, Liz Truss would be the next Prime Minister. You can read David Maddox, express.co.uk, express.co.uk. We won't know who the leader will be perhaps until September, but we'll know who the final two are before David says next Wednesday. Have you noticed how often the word sovereignty is being used by political leaders today? The fight in Ukraine's about sovereignty. The worry about China in the Pacific is about sovereignty. Mind you, it's a pretty selective concern. We don't seem to worry about the sovereignty in Myanmar or in Sri Lanka or in Yemen, where it's estimated there have been almost 250,000 deaths since 2015 in a horrible war where all sides of the conflict are reported to have violated human rights and international humanitarian law. But I mentioned yesterday, yesterday this wretched UN arm, the World Health Organization, which held a special session on December 1 last year, only the second since it was founded in 1948. Participants agreed to, quote, draft and negotiate a convention agreement or other international instrument under the constitution of the World Health Organization to strengthen pandemic, pandemic prevention, preparedness and response. Now, this is really critical. I mentioned to you that this was to be known as the Pandemic Treaty. The Director General of WHO is a bloke, as you know, Dr. Tedros Adhanan Ghebreyesus. But he's a member of the Ethiopian Marxist-Leninist party. How did he get the gig? Well, with China's support, because Ethiopia at the time was negotiating billions of dollars in loans from Beijing for a railway that links the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa to neighbouring Djibouti to avoid being buried by, quote, serious debt woes tied to China's controversial infrastructure push. Where have you heard that before? To the point I raised yesterday, which must be taken seriously, yet we've not heard a squeak here from government. As I mentioned, the WHO met in May to discuss proposed amendments to the international health regulations about how countries would respond to public health outbreaks that crossed borders and what WHO responsibilities would be in response. Amazingly, or perhaps not so amazingly, it was the appalling Biden administration, there we go again, that proposed amendments that would have dramatically expanded the scope and authority of the WHO at our expense. Chris Smith, a member of the United States House Global Health Subcommittee, warned, and I quote, the alarming amendments offered by the Biden administration 
to the WHO's international health regulations would grant new unilateral authority to WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus to declare a public health crisis in the United States or any other sovereign nation without any consultation with the US or any other WHO member. Specifically, he said, the Biden amendments would strike out the current regulation that requires the WHO to consult with and attempt to obtain verification from the state party, that is the nation, in whose territory the event is allegedly occurring, unquote. In other words, we're one of the 194 members. We would have no role in responding to an infectious disease that would be decided by a corrupt and complicit UN bureaucracy. Now, thankfully, this World Health Assembly, of which we, Australia, are a member and on the executive board, did not accept the absurd amendments by the Biden administration. This international pandemic treaty has therefore been pushed out into the future. But don't get too excited or be deceived. Time will be used to develop even more diabolical policies which undermine the sovereignty of every one of the 194 members of the WHO. And this is the point. We are Australia, a member of this outfit. We've been told nothing. The Biden administration proposed 13 amendments in January this year with no notification to the US Congress on the amendments, which would have strengthened the power of the World Health Organization. Was there any reporting to the Australian Parliament about this? Remember the language around these amendments to the international health regulations would enable the WHO Director General, Tedros Adhanan Ghebreyesus, to unilaterally declare a pandemic or a serious health status within any country without providing the country with any chance to respond. The Biden administration was prepared to concede these authorities to the WHO. And I'm saying that on so many of these issues regarding the United Nations and its instruments, we are asleep at the wheel. And it's time we woke up or we live in a country where external powers tell us what to do. Australia wants to pretend it's an international leader in the fight for democracy. Well, democracy doesn't exist when the Australian nation is denied the right to make decisions affecting its own people. And this highlights the rank incapacity of the Biden administration to lead the free world. Make no mistake, we're in trouble. These amendments would have ceded to the WHO and its Director General their right to identify what constitutes a pandemic. It would then be funded to combat what it believed was, quote, misinformation and, quote, unquote, disinformation. It would define how intellectual property would be shared and who would control it. Australia, beware. This has all the hallmarks and earmarks of empowering and funding an unaccountable, unremovable and untransparent massive organisation, the World Health Organisation. You could call it a behemoth, a huge, monstrous child of the UN. Where does Australia stand on this? What other schemes have global bureaucrats got in mind to undermine national sovereignty? My understanding is the Biden administration and its allies in Europe and Asia were all on board for these amendments. The countries that stopped it from happening were on the continent of Africa and Brazil. What was Australia's position? This is the WHO, the World Health Organization, and its supporters using the pandemic as an impetus to make these sorts of proposals a reality, an international pandemic treaty. Can someone do some homework in Canberra and tell Australian voters where Australia stands? Or is this another port of Darwin? Sell our sovereignty to a questionable outfit, the World Health Organization, another United Nations agency eating away at sovereign governments. And they'll keep doing it while we are asleep at the wheel. Well, look, before we go, many Australians are rightfully asking what the hell is going on when it comes to half the government front bench being overseas for the past two months. Well, domestically, we're in strife. I had no problem with Anthony Albanese going to Indonesia, Tokyo, or attending the NATO summit. All are worthy visits for a new prime minister who must establish ties with other world leaders. But half the cabinet going overseas is absolutely ridiculous. After being in Singapore and India only a few weeks back with Pat Conroy, Richard Miles is now on a four-day trip in the US. 
Murray Watts away in Indonesia. Pat Conroy, a bloke who represents a seat in the Hunter region, is over in Fiji, now saying climate change is the number one security threat. Penny Wong has toured the globe, it seems. And not only that, she pledged $50 million in aid to Sri Lanka, a government which was corrupt and has finally been run out of town. So where's her 50 million? It ought to be returned. Then last week, the whole Labor front bench were gushing over New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern's visit to Australia. What do we make of this announcement? That America will join Australia's efforts to push back against the rise of Chinese influence in the Pacific with a multi-million dollar package of funding for island nations. Some of these island nations, I have to say, are geniuses. They play us off against China to try to get the best deal for themselves. It's bargaining 101. They go around and say that China have offered us X amount of dollars and then Australia comes swooping in and doubles it with no questions asked. If these specific nations were so repulsed by China, why would they allow the Chinese foreign minister to tour their countries in June to persuade them to join a trade and security pact? Now, the Solomon Islands, remember, took the bait. If you see politicians in the Solomons wearing Rolex watches, you most probably know why. We're now told that the US Vice President Kamala Harris will tell leaders at this week's Pacific Islands Forum in Fiji that the US will triple funding to 88.5 million a year over the next day, decade for economic development and quote, ocean resiliency. Don't know what that last word is. Too bad no one listens to Kamala Harris. She isn't even popular in her own country or home state of California, let alone in the Pacific. Richard Miles said this week in Washington, I quote, we worry about the use of force or coercion to advance territorial claims as is occurring in the South China Sea and its implications for any number of places in the Indo-Pacific, unquote, well, sensible comments. But I'm just wondering if he or any of his Labor colleagues, when they were gushing over Jacinda Ardern and taking selfies with her, did anyone raise these concerns with her? New Zealand's the weak link. They hesitated to sign a Five Eyes joint communique denouncing Beijing's suppression of liberty in Hong Kong, as well as, re as its repression of the Uyghur Muslims. Penny Wong went with, met with Jacinta Ardern yesterday alongside Fijian Prime Minister Frank Banimarama Banimarama in the Fijian capital of Suva. Did Penny Wong raise these concerns with Ardern? Now, the public are tired of this lip service and throwing millions of taxpayers' dollars around with no debate. The 50 million to Sri Lanka is a case in point, money down the drain, which could have gone to flood ravaged Lismore. Oh, well, I suppose it's called government, is it? A new one at that, but hardly something to get excited about. That's it from me. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night.